Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, you have your Bibles. Look, if you will, 119th Psalm, 119th Psalm this morning, this being our Bible Sunday. I want to focus a little bit on verse number nine with the time that we have this morning. Notice, if you will, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. You know, as we focus on the word of God uh, today, we focus on our need for it. We focus on um, the response that our heart ought to have to the word of God. The 119th Psalm should play a paramount importance in it. We spent some time last year going through each of these sections. I think it was a total of 27 different Thursday nights that we spoke on these. And there's a couple of constants in the 119th Psalm. There's the constants of tribulation. In practically every section, uh, the, the psalmist pens of the great difficulty that he's going in. There's the constants of the desire of the Christian heart to meditate on the Word of God. Uh, do not ever be remiss in taking the opportunity to meditate on the truths of Scripture. I find that to be one of the most rewarding forms of Bible study, one of the least often regarded forms of Bible study, and one of the chiefest difficult Bible studies in which to engage is the meditation of the Word of God. But there's great and wonderful promises that come with meditation. It's here in these Psalms, in verse number uh, 10, that, uh, or verse rather number 11, where he talks about that I will hide thy word in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. We could look later in verse number 89 and other passages where he talks about thy word being a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's great preeminence that the uh, psalmist put on the responsibility of the word of God and how that word impacts the life of every believer. Uh, you know, as you think about the word of God, we could account it as being the Bible, you know, we could account it as being a number of things. Um, we could talk of it as being a history book, but primarily it is not a history book. But it is historically accurate. It does contain the history of humanity. It contains the history of humanity from its creation to its fall. It covers the creation of the first nations. In fact, the first governments that were ever formed, their record is not known to the historical annals of time, but it is revealed in scriptures. The first record of any human government is made mention in the book of Genesis. You have the record of the origin of all the languages. It's interesting that it's hard to, in our mind, it's really hard sometimes to know how a language becomes what we know it as today. But the scriptures will press forward in our mind as to where and to why there are so many different languages that exist. But the word of God is historically accurate, but it's not primarily a history book. When you think of the word of God, some might think of it as scientific information that it conveys. And it's true, the Bible contains scientific information, but primarily it is not a science book. But it is scientifically accurate. It speaks with the distinction about how the earth was formed. In fact, it is the only authoritative, it has the only authoritative record of how the world was formed. Hebrews 11 mentions this, that by faith we understand how the world was framed. And Genesis speaks of this in Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 1, where God created the heavens and the earth, and that the earth was without form and void. Um, the Word of God speaks with scientific distinctions when it speaks about the development of seasons in uh, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22. 
That's right, this earth that you and I call home, uh, this earth upon which we have lived all the days of our life, there was a time when this earth had not the seasons that we know today. We're well acquainted with the seasons. We can look out, um, we can look outside and we can see that this is not the season of summer in our hemisphere right now. I was uh, Zooming with some folks this week and they were um, south of the equator and it was interesting uh, how outside it was 40 degrees here and where they were it was 80 or 90 degrees. The presence of the location of the equator determines, you know, a little bit of those seasons. There was a time when the world had not the same seasons that it has now. But it's had those seasons since the flood of Noah's days. And those seasons has developed. You can look into the scriptures uh, and find the scientific origin of how mountains were formed. If you wanted to know how the Allegheny Mountains were formed, if you wanted to know how the uh, Blue Ridge or the Appalachian or the Alps, etc., you could find that those resulted after uh, the destruction that that quote-unquote first world went through after the flood of Noah's days. It is scientifically accurate. You could look at the Word of God and you could say it contains a lot of poetry, but primarily it is not a poetry book. But it contains some of the greatest prose that humanity could ever know. It's in this book, particularly in Psalms, you have great pieces of poetry. You have the Song of Solomon. You have a funeral dirge in the book of uh, Lamentations. But the Bible is not primarily a poetic book. It's a, a book that contains a lot of wisdom, but primarily it is not simply a book of wisdom. But it contains wisdom, as Proverbs chapter 8 says, that will crown every heating mind with grand distinction. There be a crown about thy head. Uh, as we spoke a moment ago it being a historical book, I think of the Word of God being uh, full of archaeological finds, if you will, archaeological tales, but it is not a primarily an archaeological book. But it contains fascinating and accurate accounts of civilizations that have seemingly been lost to the annals of time. In fact, uh, to be quite clear on this, this is fascinating to me, uh, there are times when you deal with the Persian Empire, times you deal with the Assyrian Empire, various empires like that, that the Word of God has made a statement that has been in record in hands of humans uh, for close to 2,500 year, 2, years in its, in its presence from the time it has made these statements. And it had mentioned kings and kingdoms. And at times there were some of scientific learning and historical learning said those kings never existed. For centuries, Centuries, historians doubted the evidence that there was, because they couldn't find any, that there was no evidence and therefore Pontius Pilate never existed. Yet the word of God had written that he was the governor of Judea, only to watch it be ratified in one sense through archaeological means. There's not a people, a tribe, a kindred, or a person that the scripture mentions that has ever been proven not to exist they exist. It is archaeologically sound. It's not a book of ancestry, but the scripture contains one of the most uh, largest and most extensive uh, uh, ancestral records in all of scriptures. It contains the ancestral pedigree of the greatest man to ever walk terra firma. I speak of Jesus Christ. It contains his record from Abraham, or rather I should say from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to David, and from David, Jesus Christ, who's referred to as the son of Mary, yet, or the son of Mary, but also the son of man, yet the son of God. It's not a counseling book, primarily, but yet it conveys the deepest relationship about the human heart. 
and it directions, it gives, whereby uh, the human heart should attend to know not only heavenly peace, but practical peace. It's not primarily a prophetical book in one sense, yet it clearly reveals the conclusion of human history and reveals even the end of the human age that will one day come. There's a number of things that we could associate. The Word of God is not primarily a financial book, yet its principles, the Scripture says, will increase one in learning. One could adopt the principles, the precepts that deal with financial stewardships in the Scriptures and do quite well for yourself in this life by heeding unto them. But what primarily is the Bible? Primarily, the Bible is a sacred book. It is the transmission of the words of God to the hands of godly men that has been preserved for you and I. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 3. The scripture says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That phrase, inspiration of God, is one word in the Greek, theonutos. Literally in reference, you could see it this way, breathed of God. That's why we believe in the verbal and plenary inspiration of scriptures. God did not just communicate a thought. God communicated the very word that he intended to be used. We spoke a little bit of this on Thursday night when we were coming out of John chapter 21. Uh, there the Lord to Peter. Uh, the Lord asked Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Peter three times on the reflection says, Yes, I love thee. And then it's recorded on that third time that he was grieved for God had asked him, lovest thou me? Those words to us seemingly, seemingly in one sense cause us to give great diligence to the study. And you'll, you'll find there uh, that they were having a conversation about two different things. God was asking Peter, Peter, do you love me like I want you to love me? Do you love me with agape love? And Peter's response all two, three times prior to that was, yes, you know that I love you like I would love a brother. That was not the love God wanted. And finally, the third time, the Lord asked him, Peter, do you love me like a brother? And Peter was grieved. My, how those were the very words that Peter heard. And they're the very words that we ought to study. This Bible is a sacred book. It speaks of the transmission of the words of God and then to godly men. I think of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, 21. He speaks about God using holy men of old that were moved by the Spirit of God. This is an amazing thing. The whole process by which there is the record of the Word of God was miraculous. They were not the words of Paul. They were not the words of Peter. Yes, I think there's an element by which you can see their personality, but they pen the exact word, God moved them along. That word moved in your New Testament, it's a nautical word. It has the idea of a ship that's in the midst of a great current. The ship always goes in the way the current dictates. And that's how these holy men of old wrote. They wrote what words God had impressed upon their hearts. And it's preserved for you and I. I think of Isaiah chapter 40, and verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower thereof fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. Peter, it's interesting. Peter reaches back by inspiration. God gives him those very words of Isaiah that he issues again in 2 Peter chapter 1. 
that the grass and the flower of the field fadeth away, but the word of God exists. It endures forever. The psalmist pens in the 12th Psalm that it is preserved from this generation forevermore. It's a magnanimous sacred book. In part, it covers, just Genesis alone, covers a part of human history of more than 2,300 years. From the dawn of creation through Abraham, the call of Abraham around 1900 B.C., um, all the way as you move into the early pages of Exodus to the Jews' exodus from Egypt in about 1490. You could go back and look at the book Job, and many would place it as being dated around 1500 B.C., really much earlier on than the children of Israel ever were to be directed out of the land of Egypt. These words have been prescribed by the Almighty God and they have been recorded by holy men of God and humanity has had them for more than 3,500 years. I challenge you to find a book still in modern demand. 3,500 years old. You'll be hard pressed. Oh, there are books. You can go to the Louvre over in France. And you can find books in their places of antiquity that are existence. But they're not in the same level of demand. I think about the Iliad and the Odyssey. There's a piece of great Greek uh, literature that exists. There are nobody in their lives that attempt to live by the Iliad and the Odyssey. There's no church upon which the Iliad and the Odyssey is their founding documents. My, most of us that have any expression with it have only read it in the condensed version. And this is true of so many of the writings of antiquities, Marcus Aurelius and his wisdom that exist. No one truly lives their life in that grand expression. No one has that as the basis and the foundation of their truthful system. Few people have that in the great demand of all that exists, but the Word of God is distinct. It is of divine origin. It is therefore sacred. Primarily, the message of the Bible is one of divine redemption. It's the redemption of God's creation that had there by their submission to evil temptation had fallen from a state of innocence in the garden. And by their continuation to transgress against the law of God had made themselves enemies against the very God that condemned or the very God rather that created them. And so the primary message of the gospel is one of redemption. Its primary expectation is one of being a sacred book. And yet we come down to this verse here in verse number 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. I think this ought to be an oft-considered passage. One in which every believer really considers the necessity in their life to allow the word of God to impact them. Really, when we think of reading the Word of God, when we think of, of memorizing the Word of Truth, there's one main reason to do so outside of the means of sanctification, salvation, I mean. There's only one main reason to continue to read the Word of God after the moment of salvation, and that one word is this, change. At the moment of salvation, you had a wonderful change that occurred in your life. You were translated from the kingdom of darkness, from being an enemy of God, to now being a son of God. John speaks of it in this matter. He said, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And so I'm saved and I'm secured. So why would I continue to read the Bible? Because I need to be changed. How badly do I need to be changed? 
real badly. How often do I need to be changed? Every day. Every day. Why do I need to be changed? Because friends, though God has saved me, my mind does not think right. My mind is broken. My heart does not want right. My heart is broken. My eyes do not see right. They see the temporal. And God would see me have seen the eternal. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. My wanter wants the things that are still opposed to God. And the greatest impact that can ever be had on my life is my own personal study, reception, and inclining of my heart to the Word of God. Change. I need change. That's what's going to make all the difference. It's the Word of God's work in me through the uh, portion of the Godhead we call the Holy Spirit of God that gives me understanding and enlightenment and directs my feet. It's my engagement in the Word of God that is going to make me a better citizen of this country. But there are greater ambitions than that. It's going to make me a better husband. It's going to make me a better daddy. It'll make me a better servant of God. That's what the Word of God does. And here in these verses it's indicated, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way. Let's look at just a few things in relationship to verse number 9. Notice the demand, this demand for having a biblical impact in, in your life of every believer. It requires an early regard, an early regard. Wherewithal shall a young man why here does the scripture use that word? It's, it's intentional. It wasn't as though David, the psalmist here, just reached back and says, you know what, let me just pick on the young people for a minute. Nor is he saying, hey, let's forget that there are people that aren't young anymore. They don't need the word of God. That wasn't what he was saying at all. That, shows, uh, that choice of that word was an intentional word that God communicated to the heart of the psalmist and that he honestly penned. What is a young man? Well, in the scriptures, it denotes, this word young man, it is denoted from the age of just after infancy all the way through adolescence. And some would even say even into mid to at least early adulthood. It's a broad range. And by the way, if you were to do a word study, I'm going to share some of mine with you. But if you were to do a word study on that word young man, particularly in its context, this is what you'll find to be the case. For instance, if you were to go all the way back to one of its first uses, it would be all the way back in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, particularly, it's a birthday party. To be honest with you, it's not the first use, but one of the first uses of this idea, young man, as mentioned here. It's at Genesis chapter 21, it's a birthday party, in a manner of speaking. Sarah has just given birth to her only child. Do you remember his name? Isaac. But Isaac has an older half-brother. Do you remember his name? Ishmael. And there's a lot of years between them. Right around 13 years different. At this particular time in Genesis chapter 21, Ishmael is moved beyond a 13-year-old because the scripture context gives that, that Isaac, the reason for this feast that is given is because something marvelous has happened in little Isaac's life. Do you remember what it was? He's weaned. You know what that means now? 
Now, that'd be a whole other word study, but essentially he has graduated in his life from the ability to eat pre-digested food in a sense. And now he can eat his own meat. And it was a celebration that they had. He was weaned. Now, in Eastern times, that didn't just happen at 18 months. Sometimes the course of that might even be early into the toddler years, three, four years old before they were fully weaned, maybe in some cases longer. But nevertheless, Ishmael is somewhere between the ages of maybe 16 and 18 years old. And the scripture speaks of him as being a young man, Ishmael. And he mocks Isaac. And Sarah is enraged. And as such, Abraham puts Ishmael's mama Hagar and Ishmael out of the house and they're going back to Egypt which is where Hagar's from and Abraham's heart is heavy because that was his biological offspring, his son. The context of the scripture relates here that he was a young man. By the way, God told Abram not to allow his heart to be overwhelmed about this. That God would spare and bless Ishmael because of who his daddy was. And certainly God would to an extent. It's also this word young man is used of Isaac. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. Genesis chapter 22. Uh, that's the time in which Isaac's going to Mount Moriah. And he's carrying with him some of the very needs that they would have for sacrifice. Well that's not a four year old or a five year old that is present there. He perhaps was somewhere between the ages of 18, maybe 15, 18, 30 years old. This same phrase, a young man, it's used in Joshua chapter 6. You'll remember that there was a certain number of spies that Joshua sent into the land and the scripture refers to them as young men. How old were they? Well, they weren't four. But I somehow doubt that they were 15 either. In fact, as the king is hunting them at Jericho, the idea is that these young men, by the expressional use of that word, were not in fact young men singularly in age only, but they had some experience. Joshua trusted these men. This same word, young man, is referred to as a young Samson in Judges chapter 13. Young man is used, in fact the word used there is child, but in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 11 it's the same Hebrew word and it has the idea of Samuel being a young man, a child, the same word when he entered temple service. It's referenced as David as a youth in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13 as they finished building the wall, he's referenced that all of his servants, young men, all of them that ruled among the people had helped. And so this idea of a young man, it distinguishes from an old man, but its category is quite broad. It is essentially a flexible description of an approximate age that may be as young as four and may move all the way up into the late 30s or 40 years old. I would note that this passage speaks of a young man's understanding of Scripture being of paramount importance. There's a couple of things to consider about why an early regard for Scripture is important. Let me give you three of these. Number one, because the sin nature is present even among the youth. I'd like to think that as one was born and grown and continue to grow and experience things in life, that at some point they'll have enough wisdom to realize that they can 
control their sin, that they can control their lust and they'll just be a better person. That's not the way it works. One of the most devastating scriptures uh, about that matter would be in the Psalms. And he said, the wicked are estranged from their mother's womb. They go forth as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Why is it so important to have an early regard for scriptures? Because the sin nature is manifested in those early years. Number two, a second reason in regards for this early, early regards is the folly of youth. I think of Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon speaking, he says, Behold, I looked out of the casement, out of the window of my house, and I discerned among the young men one void of understanding. One reason to have an early regard for the word of truth and allow it to impact your life is because of the folly of youth. Simpletons. Making decisions upon which you did not understand all of the consequences that would fall out from thence. That's what Solomon looked. He looked out, he looked across, and he saw one of these young men. He said he's a simpleton. He's not calling him stupid. He's saying he hasn't thought about the consequence of the decisions he's making in life. And he's going down a path, and if his path is not corrected... You read on down through Proverbs chapter 7, he's liable to die because of his decisions. Why start early and often the reading of the Word of God that it might impact your life as a believer? Because the folly of youth is well known. You know, it's such a silly statement that people talk about learning things by experience. You know, learning things by experience is a wonderful thing to do. Learning things as you go along in life that can be a good thing. But do you know it comes at an awful high tuition? It's far, far easier to listen to the wisdom of others than it is to figure it out, muddling your way through things. That's never how God wanted you and I to live our life, just to kind of play it by ear and figure it out and just got to go down the path. I mean, that's devastation. Can you imagine, I'm being a little silly now, but can you imagine jumping into a big pool of water? really deep, hoping that's how you'll learn how to swim all by yourself? Well, there'd be a young person that'd say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But there'd be an older person that would have a little bit more reverence for life and say, man, that's an awful silly way to learn things. The folly of youth. That folly leads to the consequences of choice, choices that were made at a young age that reverberate into the days of an old person. No wonder such wisdom here David decries, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? The importance of an early regard for scriptures. The importance of adhering to the word of God, yea, even in our youth. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul says of Timothy, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Notice a second, in fact, two words here. Wherewithal shall a young man, note these next two phrases, three words really, cleanse his way. There's an essential reason that the Bible must impact the life of every believer. Two words, two phrases to consider. Cleanse his way. Cleanse his way. 
<clears throat> this word cleanse, it means to make clear. And every reference that it has had in the book of the scriptures, it speaks of purity and cleanliness, of making one's heart clean. Job used it in Job chapter 25. He says, how then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? He speaks of being without spot, without blemish. When you look at the next phrase, two words, if you will, his way, it speaks of a well-trodden road, his way. This is the direction that results from the choices that are made in life. That phrase, his way, or into his path, as it's used in the book of Proverbs several times, should be well regarded in our heart. It should be something we consider. It's often, often in a negative, though it can be in a positive sense too. In a negative sense, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 4, uh, the, the, the writer of Proverbs speaking to his son in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 14 says, Enter not into the paths of the wicked. What is he referencing? Into the way that he's going. And what decries or determines the path that one is going is ultimately the decisions they're making today. You're not going to make and to think of decisions today and then go down that path and just suddenly wind up somewhere else by accidents. What I think about will ultimately be regarded in what I do. And what I do will ultimately lead about to where I go. That's how the biblical essence of a way and a path is determined. We referenced this passage similarly earlier in, a, in another way, but Proverbs chapter 5, speaking of the strange women, and this was the, uh, Solomon's wisdom to his son. He said, lest thou shouldest ponder the paths of life. Her ways are movable, that she cannest not know them. You cannest not know them. Speaking of the wicked man in Proverbs chapter 2 and 15, Psalmist, uh, the Proverbs, Solomon here, warns his son of these wicked individuals whose ways are crooked. In chapter 1 and verse 19, he admonishes him with a series of, My son, hear me and hear my wisdom. And he speaks of sinners enticing him. And if sinners incite thee, consent thou not. And speaking of these sinners, he says, So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. Their contemplations of their heart produce decisions in their life. And the decisions of their life cause them to go down a path that is ungodly. No wonder there's an essential reason for the young man to allow the Word of God to impact his life so that the direction of his life, his way, is upright. You won't read the literature of today. You can't just read the newspapers of the day and the media reports and hope that that's enough to cause a wayward heart to somehow wander into the path of righteousness. Anyone that's going to be in the path of the righteous made a consistent dedicated decision to do so. Look back in those previous verses we read. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk. The idea is an intentional decision to do something in the law of God. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with their whole heart. This word path, it's a devastating thing to consider. It started with our thoughts, it's moved to our decisions, and the consequence of decisions made is always the path that you are placed on. But it can be used in a positive sense. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 20, Solomon admonishing his dear son to do right and adhere to truth. Why? That thou mayest walk in the ways of good men and keep the path of the righteous. 
Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 and 6, particularly verse 6. Verse 5 talks about trusting in the Lord with all thine heart. Why? Verse 6, he shall direct thy paths. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 8, the path of our justice is a shining light. Proverbs chapter 8 in reference of wisdom and in verse 20, I lead in the way of the righteous. Even in youth, there must be an early regard for scriptures. For the great reason is error is readily present. Therefore, instruction and truth must be received early in life. There's an action to be made, a personal responsibility to adhere to truth, to be on the path of the upright as opposed to the path of the wicked. Notice, if you will, a third thing, this word heed. Heed. By taking heed thereto according to their uh, heed thereto according to thy word. An eager resolution. Heed. Heed. If you word study this through the Old Testament, you'll find the word heed. It has the idea of a hedge. As to hedge about with thorns. You know, if you've got a path and on either side. I remember as a little fellow. Outside of one church we went, they had these thorny, prickly shrubs. I don't know why we had thorny, prickly shrubs. I think it was to keep you on the walkway. But if you stayed on the walkway, you wouldn't get close. But if you wanted to get in the gardens, you hit these nasty, they were, they'd go right through your coat and they'd prick you. And there were thorn prickly things that they, up, they kept them up. They, they trimmed them and cleaned them out. They were miserable things. They were a hedge. You know what that hedge did? It kept you where you were supposed to be. That's what this word heed means. It means to cause you to be aware. It means to cause you to give attendance to something. It means to make you heed the path that you ought to go. How great importance is that in the life of every believer? We are prone like sheep to wonder, Isaiah said. We are prone, no wonder the warnings to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, turn not to the left hand nor to the right. We are prone to wander from the path of righteousness. You know what every child of God needs? They need a hedge in their life. They need a prickly pointed bush that when they begin to veer is going to poke them and cause an awareness that they stay in the path of the upright. It's an easy thing to stray from God's path, even for believers. James mentions this. And he cautions believers not to err, my dearly beloved ones. It's an easy thing to do so. And that's one of the ways the Bible impacts. It causes us to have an eager resolution to heed. Throughout the Old Testament, this word is used in, in far more ways than we can truly accomplish speaking of this morning. But I think of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. This word heed is the idea of the word keep as well. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, man was put into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. You know what Adam's chiefest responsibility was to do in the Garden of Eden? Take care of what he did. He was to surround his life, immerse his life in heeding and considering and caring for the garden. There's a lesson in that, isn't there? Oh, young man, live a life without definitive purpose. That is a dangerous life. 
Let thy heart, Ecclesiastes 12 says, let thy heart cheer thee. Don't have a purpose in life. No one's ever walking to please God unintentionally. Here, he's to have an eager resolu uh, resolution to keep. You'll find it again in Exodus chapter 23. You're to keep the feast of unleavened bread. God spoke to the Israelites. And uh, later in the passage in Exodus chapter 27 verse 16, he speaks about the angel of the Lord that God had given the children of Israel and they were to beware of him. They were to obey his voice. Uh, they were later in Exodus chapter 34 to observe thou everything that I have commanded you. You were to take heed to thyself, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 12. You think of Deuteronomy which has in chapter 6 the great Shiva, the statement, our Lord is one God. In chapter 6 and verse 2, you're to keep all his statutes. In chapter 6 and verse 3, you're to hear therefore Israel and observe to do it. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord cautioned Israel and he said, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God when thou comest into the land. Joshua chapter 7, only, or Joshua chapter 1 and verse 7, Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou may observe to do all that is written therein. What he's telling him? Take heed to the word of God. Give care. Be cautious. There must be the resolution in every child of God, especially young folks, to allow the word of God to impact them, that they heed, obey, keep, beware, observe all the commandments of God. They alone, the commandments of God, and the directive they set a child of God in, have the promise of this life, and of that which is to come. In reference to 1 Timothy chapter 4, he uses the word godliness. You'll never know godliness until you heed the path that God wants you on. I promise you, I promise you, it's not always an easy path, but it does have promise for the life that now is. Living an upright, godly life is rewarding in this life and in the life that is to come. Notice a fourth thing here. The Bible's impact on the believer. Wherewithal shall that young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto? According to thy word. Thy word, an eternal refuge. It's a comfort. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a correction. 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction. It goes on to say that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It'll be a hedge. It'll give you some correction. It's a direction that it gives. It's a compass. Psalm 16 and 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life, he speaks of. Romans chapter 15 and 4, when you think about the Word of God, it's an eternal refuge because it provides an eternal hope. And a hope that maketh not to be ashamed, Romans chapter 5 speaks of. It's life. The Word of God will grant you life. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, which liveth and abideth forever. Is sustenance. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, he talks about his newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. You know, we get on the path. 
in the Lord's will. He's a young individual. We have that resolve to heed, that need to be cleansed in our own way. There'll come troubles. That's where we recognize the Word of God as being an eternal refuge for our soul. It will keep us that we sin not. No, the Bible is not a poet book, book of poetries, though it's poetical in its essence. It's not a history book, though it's historically accurate. My friend, it's a sacred book that tells any individual how by faith they might receive the gift of God. And to those that have received that marvelous gift of God, it will direct their feet aright that they might please God. So we consider these things this morning. What is our relationship with the Word of God? Do we have a familiarity with it? We know what the Holy Bible is. Do we have a copy of it? Is it something we consider from time to time? Is it something that we flip through and flirt with when the time comes and the time goes and our feelings are such? Or is it the very sustenance of life that provides that cleansing impact, that illumination of the path ahead, that directs our souls in the way that always pleases God? What is your relationship to the Word of God? How is God's Word impacting you? Let's stand to our feet. Father... Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.